It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is internationally acclaimed guitarist Ricardo Cobo, who will be performing at the UNLV Performing Arts Center as part of its Live From series live stream from the Artemis Ham Concert Hall this Friday, December 11th at 7.30. Concert proceeds benefit the Performing Arts Center and the costs it has incurred as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. For ticket information, go to unlv.edu slash PAC, and for everything about Ricardo, go to ricardocobo.com. And Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ira. You have an interesting background. You came from originally Colombia, and I guess you started pretty early in terms of playing the guitar. And then you were on a television program that 9 million people watched. So yes. that was at age, I think, 17. But what, when did you first start as a guitarist? You know, I, I had the fortune of um, being exposed to music very early because my mother was a pianist. And so the exposure to, to, to piano music and to orchestral music was very, very present in everyday life. The fact that I took on the, the guitar was a, a rather surprising turn for my parents. And that started to happen around seven or eight years old. And I began taking lessons. You know, I mean, there, it was very hard to find a, a really good guitar teacher in Colombia, you know, around that time. So for all of us, it was a bit of an adventure. And um, obviously, you know, I, I love the piano, but the guitar really, really hypnotized me. Just the sounds when I heard guitar live totally changed my life, and I stayed with it without deviating for, you know, the rest of my life. So it's, it's, been, it's been a very early you know, love, and it has kept me alive throughout. Would you consider it a passion veering towards addiction or just a passion? Well, I, I guess all things beautiful and uh, colorful in life that are deeply moving are also somewhat addictive. So I, I think... Uh, you know, my, my father was an avid listener of music, and he, he loved the guitar. And unsurprisingly, I got bitten by that bug, you know, the playing LPs throughout the day and listening to flamenco players and uh, beautiful classical music. It, it just got under my skin to such a degree that I, I pretty much knew that that was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. How did you go from learning to play the guitar, finding an instructor? As you said, it's not easy to find a teacher at that point and in yep. Colombia. And then you appear on a television program that's broadcast to 9 million people. What was that journey like? You know, that was a very strange thing because throughout my, uh, you know, my very early years in Colombia, there was one national broadcast television station that showcased special talents and unusual talent. I don't know the exact things that led me there, but, you know, one of my parents said, you know, he's playing on, on this level. We, you know, why don't we take him to Bogota and see if let's audition for those folks. And sure enough, it happened very swiftly. I mean, I flew to Bogota and I auditioned for the programmer. And she, she went, you, you are perfect for this program. And I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> yes, of course, at that age, 17. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, what, am, I, am I playing for how many people? <laughs> it, was a, it was a very scary thing. And it was just one of these, you know, eventually when I got into the room, it, it was a, t a TV studio with a live audience. You know, it's just like a regular TV show. And you know, the big cameras rolling around and I had my little chair and my little footstool. And, and I remember being very scared, but very, very lit up. You know, I was absolutely enthralled by the process. 
of playing for a lot of people. That's sort of an, an imaginary number. I had no idea what that really was. And I did a, a little 20 minute concert. Well, what was the impact though? After you performed, did you feel it immediately when you went out back home and people came up to you and said, we saw you on television? <laughs> it was a, a little unnerving because I really had, I really had no perception that I had been, that people had witnessed what I did to such an extent. And it was a national show that focused really, there were no other channels that did things like that. So yeah, that, that catapulted me to this place where I went, oh my God, what do I do now? (laughs) (laughs) What did you do now? (laughs) That was a a really, a a really fascinating and fun thing though. I mean, I remember that being such a, such a funny event, you know, it it filled me with energy and it, and it gave me a lot of courage to do things that probably otherwise wouldn't have happened. Did that set you on the path though, to professional performing? That certainly opened that door. I mean, I had choices, you know, I could have I, I knew that I wanted to study music formally, even though, you know, I already read music and had studied music. I even enrolled in the, our local conservatory. In Cali, there was a conservatory that was very much uh, molded from European traditions. So, you know, I was exposed to solfege and counting, and I already done quite a bit of theory. And I had a real teacher, a guy who had, a, who had studied in Spain. And so th- those were very fortunate things that, that they were there because it allowed me to to really set benchmarks that probably otherwise would have been very difficult. When you performed on the television station, were you able to obtain afterwards, and I don't know what the technology was at that time, but were you able to obtain a copy of the show? I think there is a copy somewhere in my home in in Colombia that my mother has kept over the years. And there are archives of those those concerts. And, you know, I have not inquired, but I know they used it for other broadcasts. You know, it's something in the order of, you know, from the top, but on, on TV. Right. And um, so I, I believe there is a copy of, of that little concert probably in that TV station. It's still going on in a very different program, of course. I'd be surprised but, that you didn't try to get a copy of it and digitize it, even from your mom. You know, that's a very good suggestion. I, uh, I had not thought of, of doing that. But yeah, that's, that's where my idea. mind goes every time someone says, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just was a natural thought to me, but clearly you have more interesting things going on in your life that you don't worry about that. But yeah. I just thought, you know what, this set him on a path and I would think he'd love to show it to students. And, and we should mention that you're also director of guitar studies at UNLV, but I would think that'd be something you'd be showing to students or family members here in Las Vegas. So anyway, take my suggestion, see what happens. Let me know if it works. <laughs> I will definitely let you know. That sounds like a fun thing to, to work on. <laughs> Great. How did you end up coming from Colombia to, and I don't know if it was a direct route, but from Colombia to America and to Las Vegas in particular? Ira, what I ended up doing is, you know, when I was in my senior year of high school, you know, my parents and I had one of these long, frank conversations about what to do. And so I ended up applying to Peabody Conservatory. And I, I sat down, you know, one day I knew I had to send an audition. So I sat down with a little cassette player and re- recorded. And I recorded a, a 45-minute audition tape for Aaron Shearer, who used to teach at Peabody during that time. And I sent it without any expectation. And I also had the fortune that, it, that I auditioned also for the Aspen Music Festival that summer. And I got in and I spent, you know, basically three months in a, in a very fertile, very beautiful environment where I, I met colleagues and musicians and many other artists. It was a really amazing opportunity for me. I had not really been out of the country. And that's what brought me to the States, those two things when I, when I finished 
my summer at Aspen, where I met lifelong friends that I still have, I enrolled in, in Peabody, and that was a, really a life change. Where is Peabody located? Peabody Conservatory is part of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And I spent, you know, I spent almost four years in town. I got most of one degree done. And then my teacher, Aaron, moved to North Carolina. And we fought, you know, we had a group of, of uh, students who followed him there. And I did another degree at the, at the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is today University of North Carolina School of the Arts. You know, I was looking, I, I was already playing quite a few concerts. Then I started competing. And um, I ended up going to Florida State for a master's and doctorate in music. And somewhere in that trip of, uh, you know, finishing a master's and almost completing a doctorate, I, you know, I got hired by an orchestra in New York to go on tour. It was the Philharmonia Virtuosi. And I ended up moving to New York and then it was a huge battle to get my visas. So I applied for an extraordinary ability visa and the state department took me on. They, you know, they were after me for a year to see what I did. And, and they actually awarded me that visa, which is really difficult to get. And that really opened for me, opened the doors to working full time, to actually recording, to really presenting, you know, larger scale concerts and working with chamber orchestras. That was a life changer because I had never imagined that at 27 years old that I would be doing such things that, that they were possible. And I was, and I was, I felt very at home in that environment. It was a, it was a truly magical experience. And I would think your parents probably stayed in touch and saw all the things you were doing, or at least heard about them. Definitely. And, and I did treat my parents to a, a few concerts in New York City when I was Great. playing at the, in the 92nd Street Y and the Metropolitan Opera concerts. I, I played lots in New York. I played in Merkin Hall. I played in Little Carnegie, Big Carnegie. They were, they were truly moved. You know, I was very lucky that, you know, my dad was still with us. It was a very difficult term. You know, when I lived in New York, it was, it, it's like New York City is the real deal. And I saw levels of professionalism and talent that you just don't see everywhere else. And that was a, that was a gift for me. That was a, a, a life-changing proposition, for sure. And sometimes you see those skills elsewhere, but you just don't see them in those numbers. In other words, a concentration Correct. of talent, that's the thing that either can crush you or inspire you to reach those same levels. It was really something, you know, because if, if you really wanted to put a project together and your creative spirit was well-founded, you could call. In 24 hours, you could arrange a whole thing and put it together. Everybody was there, and everybody was very willing to work and to explore with you. So that was really a very fun part in New York. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. And then you made a decision to come to Las Vegas. So how did that happen? I moved here initially, like around 2000, and I ended up, really, Las Vegas was an exploration. I'd been coming here to play shows and to do, to play with different musicians related to UNLV at the time, for sure, and certainly a lot of work that I did in the strip. And so I, I was familiar with Las Vegas and fascinated with the idea of, you know, being in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. And there's all this beautiful stuff going on. And, and very shortly thereafter, I, I found the national parks that surround this area. Really, really changed my life, that, that kind of environment. So I ended up moving here right on the day, on September 11th, when the towers were hit. I had moved to Vegas officially that day. And it was just very strange, you know, it's just, I thought, what has happened? I mean, I was sitting in my, you know, I had built a little house here in the West Side and my sister called me and I'm seeing this on the TV and I'm sitting here in Vegas going, that is not possible. <laughs> well, did you have was, a sense of guilt because you had left and the uh, towers were attacked that same day? 
I didn't quite feel guilt, but I felt that the, the earth had changed. I felt that, okay, we have changed course. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we are, we are heading in a, in a very different direction now. This, this, yeah, it, it was a sign for, for many of us who were there when that was happening and our colleagues who were still in New York. And there was a bit of a exodus from New York. Many of my friends who were musicians had moved here. You know, there was a big pull towards moving here and, and that just probably coincidental, but I think people who were around me and saw that opportunities here were were much clearer and the overhead and the cost of living here was was definitely manageable, which was not the case in New York. So very few of my, my old friends uh, who were in New York that remained there, very few, like, you know, a few. But a dozen of us all ended up migrating, going out west. So you got go a chance, young man. Yeah, go west, young man. <laughs> you got a chance to see, I assume, because you mentioned performing on the strip, a little bit of the old Las Vegas when they had orchestras yes. on on a regular basis, and the musicians' union was very strong, and that all changed over yep. time. So it's a whole different world now. But you still feel that it's stronger here than it would be in New York or elsewhere, or am well, I, I mean, am I wrong? No, I, I think that was true at the time that we came here. You know, things changed very quickly, but definitely, it, it, I also saw that that a lot of people, you know, moved. I mean, they, they, they went back to New York, back and forth from Vegas to New York, and that many shows that came later in, you know, 2010 forward, that many musicians came from New York to produce new shows here in Vegas, that that was a, a very common, and, and Vegas really did grow. It's, I mean, nothing will ever quite be like New York, but I don't think the New York that I entered, you know, in 1989 when I was there is anywhere near to the New York that is there now. In 89, there were still many artists, musicians, you know, instrument builders, inventors, studios. New York was just full of people that lived in little apartments in the village and rent-controlled units all over town. I mean, you know, they, they ran their businesses from home. It was still affordable to do that. I don't know that now New York is affordable or that business is doable on that kind of overhead. I think it's really tricky today to do that. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about your upcoming performance. My guest, Internationally acclaimed guitarist Ricardo Cobo will be performing at the UNLV Performing Arts Center as part of its Live From series, live stream from the Artemis Cam Concert Hall this Friday, December 11th at 7.30. Concert proceeds benefit the Performing Arts Center and the costs it has incurred as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. For ticket information, go to unlv.edu slash PAC, P-A-C. And for everything about Ricardo, go to ricardocobo.com. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with internationally acclaimed guitarist Ricardo Cobo. He'll be performing at the UNLV Performing Arts Center live stream from the Artemis Pam Concert Hall, part of its Live From series this Friday, December 11th at 7.30. For ticket information, go to unlv.edu slash 
PAC, P-A-C. And for everything about Ricardo, go to ricardocobo.com. And Ricardo, this performance that's coming up, clearly with COVID in mind, it's going to be live streamed. Are you going to still have some people in the audience when you perform? I believe there will be no one in the audience. Maybe I know that my crew, the great crew from the Performing Arts Center, are going to be there. Our camera guys and our video guys and sound guys are probably going to be in the space, but that is it. I know my, my wife will probably be there because she runs the Performing Arts Center. So I think that will be it. We have just a, just a handful of folks. We know that this is a very high-risk moment in, in the COVID you know, infection curve, and, and we're trying to keep everybody safe. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's going to be no live audience this time. But the show must go on, as they say. The show must go on, for sure. <laughs> are you going to be, now this may, again, this is a naive question on my part, but sometimes those are the best questions. And that is, when someone at your level performs, do you just use one guitar or do you switch over to different guitars? That's an awesome question. I, I personally love to use two guitars, sometimes three. It's more of an experiment because, I, I mean, obviously I have guitars that I prefer and that were custom built for me that I got very used to, and I was very involved in the design and the, and the building. And other guitars are just, you know, guitars like all instruments. They're so different from one luthier to another that they do fit certain types of music in the program better. I'll probably use two guitars in my concert. I'll, I'll use a guitar by Thomas Humphrey and a guitar by Greg Brandt. Both guitars are really different. My Humphreys, of course, are, are much older, and Greg, Built me a guitar about a year ago that I've been testing, and it's a, a superb brand new instrument. And we'll see. You know, it's it, that is an ongoing experiment, and I do like to test them in the open and test them live to see how they work. And a mechanical question, in a sense, you're used to performing on stage where there's an audience. You get the not just the audience feedback as you're performing, but at the end when they applaud or they right. they do different things. So you get that live feel when you're doing something like this, and I don't know if you've done this before, but if you, when you're doing something like this, I assume that you have to work into your psychology or your mentality that after each performance, you have to take a beat before you go to the next thing. In other words, there's no audience applauding or reacting to you, which right. is sad for the artist, but... You also have to give, you have to also give a chance for the people at home watching to to take a moment to react to you, and they may be applauding. You don't hear them or see them, right? But you can't just go on to the next tune, so to speak. No, no, I'm going to pace. That's a that's a really good point. I had, I actually had not thought about that, but it's I I would have to pace, and I will pace the program as if it's a, a live interview or a live show for sure. So no, I, I'm not going to just ramble through it. I'm 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 going to pause. You know, there will be. Very clear beginnings and endings. I may add a few words. You know, that's mostly, uh, I do that on the fly mostly. And if I have something I really need to say about the music to prepare the listener for, you know, for a listening experience, you talk, you, I may talk about the music and what it is. Right. Um, and I want to talk with you about that in a moment, but I'm one more sure. mechanical question, I guess. And, and these are food for thought, I guess, in, in a sense, if you haven't thought about them before. But because you're going to be working with cameras, and again, there's no audience, there's moments where you want to be intimate with the audience, so there's a close-up of you, and you're going to have to know when those are. So I don't know if you're going to rehearse everything first with cameras so you get a sense of it, but in other words, when you actually want to talk and have an intimate moment with the audience, with the viewers, you want it as a close-up, not as a medium shot, or I'm not going to get overly technical here, but 
I think you understand what I'm saying. In other yeah, words, absolutely. you're going to have to play to the camera rather than to the audience because there is no audience in the, in the theater, in the concert Correct. hall. It's they're at home watching you, which is a different connection, but it, you, you clearly can make it work. But I'm just saying there are those elements that are different this time. Definitely. And, and I mean, I trust my cameraman. I, I, I know him and he's, uh, I, I know that he will, we will probably have a, a conversation in detail about when to look up and where to look. Right. Uh, when I start speaking. So I, I am aware of, of those issues and those are really important issues. So, I mean, streamcast, you know, live streamcast uh, do take practice. I mean, I, I know you're fully aware of that. So I, that's something that I know those, I trust those guys. I have seen how they work. They're an, really an impeccable professional team at the pack. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that when we do sound on the day before, we will have a discussion about, you know, where to look when I'm speaking, where to look you know, when I'm playing and they'll take care of the rest. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't so mean to a, break the fourth wall, but I just, I was interested <laughs> in that aspect of it because this is a unique event. And I'm assuming that there will be people watching, not just in Las Vegas, but from all over the place, sure. because people listen to this show all over the world and people know you from all over the world. So the fact that they can connect all over the world to this performance. They don't physically have to be at Ham Hall. They're going to be watching on their computer or on their television through the computer, whatever it is. That's right. I mean, this will be a fascinating experiment to see, you know, the, the, the spread of the concert, you know, where it will go. That is fascinating to me. I mean, that's a part of our, our world that is absolutely, you know, uncharted territory. And we're moving in many different directions. There are so, a lot of performers and artists in Las Vegas. I've talked to several of them who have decided to do shows from their home and on, right. either on Facebook or YouTube or both or other channels, either using Zoom or Skype or other means of getting out there. Have you thought mm -hmm. about that once this performance is, is done? Have you thought about coming up with a, if not a weekly, perhaps a bi-weekly or monthly presentation? Ira, that's, that's a, a very good question. And I have been preparing for for that very, you know, I'm, I'm educating myself and bringing myself up to date. I mean, in, in terms of the hardware, there was, you know, from, I mean, I have a studio that, that I've had in my home for 20 years. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a basic studio with all the equipment and the cabling and the connections, you know, that works for me. Right. But, you know, I've had, but now, you know, the issue of streaming live requires cameras and requires software knowledge and it requires editing and lighting. So I have brought myself very quickly up to date. And don't forget, too, Ricardo, that they've gotten rid of real-to-real -real tape now. Right. <laughs> funny you mention that because I still have my real-to-real -real machine. There you go. <laughs> How did I know? Because <laughs> you mentioned cassettes earlier, but I had a feeling it might go even further back yep. in that sense. So, But listen, I'm older than you. I've got 78, so what are you going to do? Uh, wow. so, <laughs> Congratulations. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> so how do you set up the program for this? In other words, what are you looking to accomplish as far as a variety of musical selections? You know, this program that, that I have, I mean, I'm working on it. I'm still changing it to this day, you know, I'm, and we're getting very close. But usually, you know, guitar programs are, are two halves of 45 minutes. So we're going to do in this case, because of the streaming and the, and the particular environment, a 45-minute set, and almost all the music in that program will be Latin Amer American composers that are not often heard. They're not part of the mainstream repertory. So I will be playing music of Eduardo Martin from Cuba, Jose Lascano, also from Cuba, who lives here in the U.S., and a former 
colleague from uh, Johns Hopkins when we were there together, studying together. He's written a lot of beautiful guitar music. I'll include music of Dylan Mando Reis, the Brazilian composer and guitarist. I may include one 19th century piece by Napoleon Coste, just to start the program so people know this is a guitar and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a contemporary guitar, but it's, it's, its roots are deeply, deeply rooted in, in classical music of the 19th century. And then, you know, all the music after that is basically very deep Latin roots, some tangos by Piazzolla and, and some new music by Maximo de Opujol. That probably will be the program. And it's, um, some of it is very beautiful, romantic sounding melodies. All the music is tonal. And a good chunk of the music is based on Cuban son. So it's a, it's a bit of son and salsa woven through the pieces of Eduardo Martin, who does that just very beautifully. And well, that's, that's my program. Great. And before I let you go, tell us a little bit about Leo Brower. So Leo Brower, who's still alive today, probably 80, 81, 82 years old, was a composer who grew up in Cuba during the very, very dark days of the Soviet bloc and um, was a unique composer in that he found his voice on the guitar. And of course, guitar is so prevalent. It's, it's such an icon in Latin American music. But to find a composer that would write on a really high intellectual level with power and conciseness, and, and he developed you know, a catalog, a very prolific catalog of solo guitar works, guitar concertos, guitar and chamber music. That was uncanny, you know, unheard of. And, and his music was fascinating to me since I was studying, you know, in my teens, I was exposed to his solo guitar. And as an adult, I, I ended up bringing two of his concertos and we premiered them in New York. We recorded them in, in the Ukraine. And, and his music is, is invaluable. It's one of the pillars of guitar rap. Well, that's a great way to leave it. I wanted you to mention him because I know there's a connection between you and him. And, yes. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Ira, it's my pleasure to speak with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, my guest has been internationally acclaimed guitarist Ricardo Cobo, who will be performing at the UNLV Performing Arts Center as part of its Live From series and its live stream from the Artemis Ham Concert Hall this Friday, December 11th at 7.30. Concert proceeds benefit the Performing Arts Center and the costs that it has incurred as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. For ticket information, go to unlv.edu slash PAC, P-A-C. And for everything about Ricardo, you can go to ricardocobo.com. And Ricardo, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Ira. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah, hey. Oh,